Hi, and welcome to the Bookish Besties podcast. We're excited you're here with us to talk all things books and reading. We are two friends brought together by our love of reading. I'm Diane and adore my beach life in Charleston, South Carolina with my family and dogs. Reading has been a pleasure my whole life. I read to travel when I cannot leave home, to escape when life gets to be too much, to learn even when I'm not in school anymore, and to make new friends on the pages of stories and by talking to those who share my passion. And I'm Mary, a northerner living in the frozen tundra of Madison, Wisconsin. I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember and make a point to read every day while still balancing the challenges of work and life. My ideal is to be curled up by the fire with the dog on my lap, a glass of wine on the end table, and a good book in my hands. We would be most grateful if you would rate and review our podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thank you so much and happy reading. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Bookish Besties podcast. Today we're here with author Andrew Ottschel and we're discussing his new book, The Gringa. The Gringa has been described as a gripping and subversive novel about the slippery nature of the truth and the tragic consequences of American idealism. The Gringa is set in Peru during the 1990s and the 2000s, inspired by the real-life story of Lori Berenson, who spent 15 years in a military prison following her conviction on terrorist charges. It is the story of Lenora, Lenora Gelb, a U.S. aid worker, Stanford graduate, and a child of privilege who gets involved with the leftist militants in the volatile years after Peru's dirty war against the Shining Path. Narrated 10 years later by an expat, failed novelist and refugee from George Bush's America, who has accepted a magazine assignment to write Lenora's story. The novel juxtaposes Peru's struggles against revolutionary violence with the U.S.'s own war on terror, asking complicated questions about activism, resistance, identity, and the rights of artists, or anyone, to speak for the other. Welcome, Andrew. I'm so happy to have you today. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Diane. Sure. Now, your publicist did a great job of um, linking this book to me because I don't know if I would have found you, but I loved The Gringa. It was smart and thoughtful. Can you tell us a little bit? It did come out on the 10th of March. So, yes, so the timing was not super great, but the good news is everybody can get it now. It's out in the world. Yeah, thanks. It, yeah, it came out. Um, I, I had excellent timing. It came out the day before <laughs> the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Um, I actually had the first of what was going to be 15 bookstore events on the night of March 11th. That was in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Um, and I was on the road. I had five more events scheduled in the next seven days. And I went from city to city every day. Uh, by train or car or airplane, and I would arrive just in time to get the text message or the email saying that that night's event had been canceled. canceled. Oh, I'm so sorry. Domino effect. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, like you said, the book is out there now, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to people about it on your podcast, um, and I hope that, uh, that people will, will, um, will look it up, will check it out. I did. Um, so you have written two previous novels, you let me see let me get the dates right so you wrote um lady lazarus in 2008 and deo ex machina in 2011. i um finished the gringa which just came out 
and immediately ordered your next, your previous two, which will be, I'll read them after the first, after the third book. But um, I thought that your writing was insightful and super smart, and I equal parts admired and identified with Leo, and kind of wanted to shake her by the shoulders and say, "Girl." <laughs> So tell us a little bit about the gringa. Sure, I, I will. And, and first of all, I want to say that I, I think you have a terrific method of not only buying the gringa, but then buying the other books as well. I, I recommend that. Yes, uh, I recommend it as well. <laughs> who likes the book? So yeah, so the, so the gringa is is has kind of two parallel storylines or or or, or braided storylines. You have this story about Leonora Gelb, who, like you mentioned, is was inspired by a real life. Um, American figure named Lori Berenson, who in 1995 was arrested in Peru um, and convicted of, of terrorism-related charges and treason. And she spent 15 years in a military prison before she was paroled in 2010. Um, so Leonora Gelb is, is the novel's version of that story. And, and the novel takes us not only through um, what happens in Peru that leads up to her arrest and her conviction, um, and also some of the aftermath, her, her experience in prison and after being paroled, but also tries to go back and kind of excavate who this person is, what turns a, you know, quote unquote, nice Jewish American girl from New York into someone that another country uh, accuses and convicts of being a terrorist. Um, and the, the voice that's sort of leading readers through that excavation and through that exploration is, um, is this other American character who the reader only knows by Andres. It's sort of the, the name he's given himself after having himself moved to Peru about 10 years later in the aftermath of 9-11 and the Iraq invasion and the detainee abuses in the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And Andres is, um, he, he, he's a novelist, uh, kind of a, a failed novelist. And, and more importantly, he's He's a, he's a very um, self-centered and, and irresponsible person. He's left the U.S. really to get away from what he sees as the kind of deplorable politics of post-9-11 America. And he, and he goes to Peru really to sort of um, just live a hedonistic life where he doesn't really need to think about anything as upsetting as terrorism and violence and surveillance and, and, and torture and, and, and all of the things that that um, we as Americans woke up to found our, find ourselves thinking about um, during the, the first years of this century. Um, so through a sort of series of events, Andres gets maneuvered into writing a profile of Leonora. Um, she's about to be paroled and a, um, a website back in the US that he has some prior connections to asks him to kind of write her story, which he has no interest in doing. I mean, he hears the word terrorism and he just wants to run in the opposite direction. But he's, he's running out of money, he's got some personal problems, he, he needs to um, kind of find a, uh, a, a temporary escape from. So he takes on this story, and, and, and what it does is it kind of digs up for him all of those, um, all, all of that, um, those thoughts and memories about what happened in our country when we were faced with what we thought was um, a, a very urgent threat of terrorism and ongoing violence against the American people. We talked about this a lot. I mean, I think, I think you and, and most of your listeners will remember that there was a real, um, there was a narrative in those years about America losing its innocence. Mm -hmm. we, we, we heard that phrase a lot. You yep. know, we lost our innocence 
on 9-11. We woke up to how dangerous a place the world can be. Um, and, and that was always a very complicated narrative, at least in my view. Um, and in the gringo, what, what I tried to do is sort of show how in a country like Peru, which in the 1980s and early 1990s fought a counterinsurgency war against the Maoist outfit called the Shining Path, um, they quote unquote lost their innocence quite some time ago. And um, there was a lot of condemnation in the world from the US uh, among many other places about the measures that they took, that that government took um, to in their view, keep their people safe. Um, uh, extrajudicial killings, um, indefinite detention, black sites, torture, all of these things which you know, a couple decades later would become very, very familiar to Americans. Um, but the fact that so many Americans kind of reacted with, with shock and disbelief that right. our government would, um, would employ such, such tactics um, always sat strangely with me because we'd seen this happening in many other parts of the world. We had encouraged or supported it in places like Peru, in Chile, in Argentina, um, in Nicaragua um, during the 1970s and 1980s. And so I, I was interested in this question of what it means to lose one's innocence. I was also interested in the question of activism and what some people will are, are willing to put on the line to fight for their beliefs. Leonora Gelb is someone who, um, she's a true believer in her cause. She wants to fight against oppression and racism and poverty and corruption and oligarchy and all these things that lots and lots of um, right-thinking people uh, protest against, speak out against, but when protesting and speaking out have no visible effect, Leo's gonna take the next step. And she's someone who simply decides she can't live with herself if she hasn't done everything possible. And like you, Diane, um, when I think about that story, when I think about Lori Berenson, who inspired it, um, I have this very uncomfortable mixed response to it because on the one hand, there is a, a level of admiration. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly have never put anything um, truly valuable on the line. I mean, I've gone right. to my share of protests and demonstrations and whatnot, but but my freedom, my life, these are things I've never been willing to risk, even right. in the name of what I might describe as a moral imperative. And Leonora Gelb does, and she pays the price for it. She's sentenced originally to life in prison before it's commuted to 20 years. Um, so Andres serves as the kind of counterbalance to that. He's the person who says, well, why would anybody <laughs> behave this way? Why would anybody kind of ruin their own life for people in another country, right. speaking another language, living under different circumstances. And he slowly has to kind of find his way through those uncomfortable reactions and, 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 and through that paradox as well. Right, his kind of reason for going to Peru was to check out. And Leo went to Peru to, to so check in, right? To, right. To, to stand up for everything that was wrong. And, and he kind of went there fleeing just to be, uh, whatever. And, and right. their, their reasons for landing in Peru were quite opposite. That's true. Um, although one thing I discovered and this, you know, I had to, I had to really work on the book for years before this became clear to me. And then when it did, it was really one of the turning points in, in terms of writing the book I wanted to write. They, they, they do go to Peru for ostensibly completely different reasons. Um, but at the same time, they're linked by a certain kind of American arrogance, mm -hmm. a certain idea that 
as Americans, we can go anywhere we want and sort of bring our values and our experience and our way of life with us. Right. And, um, you know, whether you're doing that in the name of spreading democracy, as mm -hmm. the Bush administration wanted to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, whether you're doing that, that in the name of righting wrongs, as, as Leonora Gelb does, or whether you're doing that in the name of, um, in the way that Andres does, which is to say, I'm an American with enough privilege and enough money in my savings account to go to a developing country and just kind of live the good life for a few years with no responsibilities to that country or its people, the way that Americans have always sort of treated the rest of the world, especially the developing world, especially the world of people whose skin is darker than ours, mm -hmm. as a kind of playground for our own value systems or a backdrop for our own um, personal discovery or, or re reinvention or whatever it might be. And so figuring out that Andres and Leo really deep down weren't so different or that they were operating out of some of the same assumptions and biases was one of the things that really helped sort of kick the novel up to the next level for me. Yeah, I, I found, and so I, I read the book through once and I do, I just, to just read it. And then I went through the second time, like to kind of take it apart a little bit so I could speak to you as intellectually as you wrote the book, which was very highly done. And I started thinking, okay, what was the turning point for Leo? Like, when did she, and literally before I got to page 130, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, like seven turning points. So I'm like, right. okay, clearly there wasn't maybe one, you know, watershed moment for her, but she has a lot of, you know, her mother took her to a concert and she was with friends and, and there was people, you know, giving publicity to people who had less than or people who were impoverished or harmed. And, you know, she was watching the news one time in her family room in, in New York State and they talk about death squads and she asks her parents and her dad doesn't even want to answer the question, but her mother tells her what that is. And, you know, it's all these little awakenings. And I see that in my kids. We have five children, um, 22 to 15 right now. And some of them are, um, they've all grown up with a lot of privilege. Um, they have all grown up also as travelers though. So they've seen the world in different ways than a lot of kids have. Um, so I hope they're a little bit more aware, but I have a couple of kids who are very, um, to the point that even watching the nightly news is a struggle in our house. I, I often just turn it off, not even now, but pre COVID, I even turned it off because, um, I see Lenora as this highly evolved and highly sensitive person feels the injustices of others, but measured by her own barometer of injustice, exactly. right? And, and what we try to teach our kids is that you can't necessarily take your thermometer or your barometer to a different place because they get to decide their thermometer and their barometer. Right. And, and, yeah, and, and one of the things um, that was really interesting to me as I was kind of building her character and, and putting together a, 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 a backstory for her um, and, and, you know, I, I, when I was researching this novel, I spent a lot of time in Peru. I, first of all, I lived in Peru for a couple of years in the late nineties, but while I was writing this book, I went back five or six times and I just talked to so many people who had been involved in the war in the 1980s, the early 1990s, or had been affected by it, which is to say everyone in the country. Exactly. <laughs> people killed. Um, there's no one in the country 
whose lives were turned upside down by it. Um, and I talked to journalists, I talked to activists, I talked to people who had been members of um, uh, uh, like paramilitary groups, I talked to military veterans, I talked to attorney, human rights attorneys. Um, and one thing that, that really um, became clear to me in, about how someone like Leo um, becomes who she is, is that nobody really is, is born wanting to be a terrorist. Nobody is born wanting to hurt people, to kill people, to kidnap people, to sabotage people, to fly airplanes into skyscrapers. Right. What happens is that people have, believe in certain causes and step by step, they, they make decisions to um, defend their beliefs, promote their beliefs, and as they find that their actions are ineffective, every time they face the kind of decision tree, well, that, that didn't work. Do I take the next step? That didn't work. Do I take the next mm -hmm. step until one day, you know, the next step is saying nothing will change by peaceful means. And, you know, whether you believe that's true or not, um, we can certainly look back at every major um, uh, sort of social and political development um, in history and, and find violence um, somewhere in the history, somewhere in the, in the process of bringing about change. So, it, it, you know, it's like that old, that old parable about um, how you boil a frog, right? You, mm -hmm. don't, you don't throw a frog into a pot of boiling water. You put a frog into lukewarm water and little by little you turn, turn up, up the heat. heat. Yep. By the time it knows that it's, that it's boiling, it's too late to get out. So that was the model I had for Leo. And you're right, there, there are all these places where you know, there, there's some new input that is slowly opening her eyes or there's some opportunity for her to turn back, take another step. But she keeps pushing herself, saying, who would I be if I turn around now? Right. And, you know, and I think central to that question, it, it wasn't a huge part of the novel that you explored, but it was a huge part. It struck me um, was her Judaism. So inherent in her Judaism is, you know, a belief in social justice. Inherent in all Judaism is a belief in social justice. And you have a great um, conversation with a rabbi in there where he says, true, social justice is integral. Helping others is integral. Violence, not integral. We do not, we, we do not encourage or, or anything violence. But I think as a young woman, um, and Leo never used, you know, her Judaism to defend her violence or, or you know, but I think that um, she saw herself, and it says it in you know page 145, revolutionary. Revolutionary was her word. She wasn't a do-gooder necessarily. Maybe that's how she started, and she didn't identify herself as a terrorist, which is maybe how she ended. But but revolutionary, and and I think that 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 mindset for her um, is true, and it's true for so many people right now, and struggling with. I know for myself, for my kid, like when you see wrong and you know wrong, whether it's small wrongs right here, we have it plenty in our own country, or huge wrongs across the world, you know, what is our, what is our job? What is our moral responsibility? Whether that's based upon our religious ideology or just our own morality. Um, and I thought the looking into that from Leo's point of view was really interesting. I really enjoyed that component. Thank you. Yeah, that was one. That was an interesting part of the book for me. I mean, yeah, Leonora Gelb was was raised in a Jewish family, as was Lori Berenson, whom she was inspired by, as was I. And and one of the interesting things 
for me was to think about um, uh, one of the things that fascinates me about both the character and and the historical basis for the character is this idea of um, you know how how people who are who come from similar places can go in different directions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, uh, you know, Lori Berenson and I are exactly the same age. We were both raised in the New York area by sort of middle class or upper middle class secularized Jewish families. We both went to you know excellent private universities in New England. I mean, there, yeah. there, and, and we both have, you know, what I think could generously be called leftist politics. Um, but what happened to her is so far from the experience of anything that could ever happen to me, whether for good or bad, I would, I would never be in those situations. And I wanted to understand kind of, you know, what makes one person go in one direction and one go in another. Um, and I think that this this question of her Jewish background um, was was interesting to me. I mean, certainly in the United States, if you look back over the last, you know, 150 years, really since the first um, late 19th century waves of Jewish immigrants, Jews have been centrally involved in every um, in every large scale movement uh, uh, of social progress mm-hmm. um, in, in in the history of of modern America. Um, and I don't think that's an accident. Certainly, I don't want to essentialize Jews. Not all Jews are leftists. Not all Jews are, are even vote Democrat, though about 70 to 80% of us do. Um, but I think it's true that there is something inherent to Jewish thought, to Jewish culture, to Jewish teaching, um, that you don't simply uh, accept injustice. You don't simply take the world as it is warts and all. You heal the world. You know, there's a, there's a term for that, tikkun olam. Um, but what does that mean? Um, as with so many things in Jewish teaching, it's left up to the individual Jew to figure out what that means for them in their life and consulting their own conscience. So it's not Judaism that makes Leonora Gelb turn to violence, it's, but it may be Judaism that makes her more aware of all of the injustice around her, more sensitive to it, mm-hmm. um, and less willing to simply live her own comfortable life uh, with that going on all around. Right. I think as a population who has been marginalized um, historically, right, it's easier perhaps to understand others who are also marginalized for different reasons, but but right. marginalized nonetheless. That's right. I think that's right. Okay. So Leo, Leonora is my is the central character and my favorite. I began by saying I at once admired her and, and I admired her all the way to the end, honestly. Um, you, you know, I'm not giving away everything. I don't want to give away everything, but but, but hard things happened, like, you know, yeah. and, and criminal things happened. Well. And yes, um, but I do think that her heart remained true to, to her cause and what she was trying to do. Um, but at the same time, I wanted, so my, maybe my young idealist, also highly educated girl heart wanted to identify with her. And my mama heart was like, oh, for the love, turn around and stop, you know. But um, how did you kind of reconcile having, I think what you did was you showed Lenora fully human. And, and I think that a lot of books, it's easy to kind of pigeonhole people. And I think that you did a great job of showing all of Lenora. 
did you how often how many times did you rewrite this character to give us the whole spectrum of her i never know how to answer that question <laughs> because there are there are um you know there are passages in the book that that i essentially wrote once and then polished up a few times very very few passages but but they're in there right and then there are passages that i probably wrote 35 or 40 times um passages that uh, that that were that were new to say the last draft or the next to last draft, other passages that had been in since the beginning. So it's really hard to say. But I, it took me eight years to write the book, and and one of the reasons was exactly this: was I I needed to dig down deep enough into this character to understand her as someone who is both you know wildly different from me, but also also the same as me, mm -hmm. also who shares a, a humanity and a set of concerns with me. Um, and it's so easy to kind of take the headlines of a character like this. And, and in my case, I was working off of actual headlines. I was going back right. to the, all of the media around what happened to Lori Berenson um, and see things in two dimensions, right? I mean, in Lori Berenson's case, there were two competing stories. The, gover the government of Peru said she was a terrorist mastermind who was at the head of a plot by um, a Marxist guerrilla outfit to stage an armed invasion of the country's Congress and kidnap legislators to leverage a, a hostage swap and other political demands and that they were willing to kill hundreds or thousands of people to restart this dirty war that had only ended a few years in between. Lori Berenson always said, look, <laughs> I was a journalist. I was living in Peru to write stories about, um, about uh, Peru's poor and working class people and its recovery from the war. I was renting a house a very large house in the suburbs. I had extra bedrooms that I rented out to people I didn't know very well. I had no idea that they were members of this of this left-wing um, uh, revolutionary group. I had no idea that they were plotting anything of the sort. And by the way, they weren't plotting anything of the sort. Right. Um, and so, you know, both of these stories and both of these um, sort of archetypes, the terrorist mastermind, but also, you know, the, 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 the innocent American caught up in something she doesn't understand. They both seem totally preposterous to me. Neither of those stories is believable. And so what I wanted the, the, the novel to do was to kind of walk a, a, a tightrope in between those two stories and figure out kind of, you know, what the tiny grain of truth in each of those stories might have been, but also a much bigger picture of how an actual flesh and blood human being finds herself in places like this um and to do that um andres my narrator realizes well i can't just start from her arrest i can't just start from the day she arrived in peru i've got to go back you know to the first time she took part in any kind of um uh protest movement which was when she was in college mm -hmm. i got to go back further than that to the times that she started learning and thinking about all the terrible things that go on in the world i had to really think about you know what builds um, a personality that might eventually find herself um, going down this road. Right. Now, did you meet Lori? Did you talk to Lori? No. No. No, I didn't. I, um, so when I started writing the novel, I started writing the novel um, right around the time that she was paroled, which is in, was in 2010. She had, she, she had been sentenced to life in prison, which was commuted to 20 years. She was paroled after five. 
um, on the condition that she remain in Peru for the remaining five years of her sentence. So the period when I was doing the most research for this novel, like 2011 to 2014 or 15, she was still living in Peru. I had a vague idea um, where she was living. And every once in a while, as I was talking to somebody, interviewing somebody, um, two or three times, somebody would say to me, you know, if you're really interested, I know a guy who knows a guy who <laughs> might be able to put you in touch. And you know, the first time somebody asked me this, I thought about it for a good long time. Um, but I said no. Um, and the reason I said no is because it was already clear to me that writing a, a novel that, that takes the, the, the real story of real living people and fictionalizes it and mm -hmm. shapes it into um, you know, a story that might satisfy readers of novels was already a very ethically tricky mm -hmm. situation. Um, and, I, and I was very careful as I wrote the story, on the one hand, to stay as faithful as I could to the big picture of the war and Peruvian life. I, I, I felt like I had no right to fictionalize this national trauma that had killed so many people, right. ruined so many lives. That was material that I wasn't going to play with at all. In the case of Lori Berenson, I was very clear that I wasn't, that I was going to take the information that anybody who read the newspapers or, or looked up old YouTube clips had available to them. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to try to get any deeper or try to find out anything personal or, um, or, or hidden about her because I did not want this to be read as a true story. It makes no claims to be a true story. It's a story that takes the very broad outlines of what happened to Berenson and uses them as a jumping off place to kind of explore certain things about psychology and about what it means to be American and about um, revolutionary struggle. And I, I didn't want to go down the road of making it, um, you know, a nonfiction novel or anything along those lines. And so when people offered to introduce me to Lori or, or to help me try to try to meet Lori, um, I kind of immediately knew that if I sat down with Lori Berenson and said, tell me your story, then her story had to be the novel's story. Right. There, there would be no, no, no moral excuse for hearing her story from her own mouth and then, and then distorting it or altering it or shaping it to my own purposes. And so I don't know that this is an ethically perfect compromise I struck with myself, but it, it was what I was comfortable with. Um, sure. and if I, if I had sat down with her, I don't, I don't think I could have written the book. Yeah. I think it would have been a nonfiction account, right? It, it, it would have changed. I don't know that you could have novelized what happened to a real person. Yeah. And a nonfiction account that, that I, I couldn't necessarily have believed in because everything that I've ever read that she said about what happened to her does not entirely ring true to me. It's the entire reason that I wrote the novel was right. to kind of figure out what the real story might have been. And I couldn't say to her, well, tell me the truth and then write something different because I don't believe her truth. Right, right. And, and at the time, her truth, she still had consequences for the story that she had Absolutely. told herself and that she was telling. I think, um, I think in five years, I would love to be a fly on the wall and have you two sit down together over dinner. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, that would be a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Certainly if I were Laurie Behrens and I would have less than no interest in it. <laughs> You know, it, it, it could happen one day. Who knows? Who knows? Um, Stranger things have happened, Andrew. 
Stranger things have happened, certainly. <laughs> um, they're happening right now. Um, but the, to the point that you made about, about the, you know, the, her stakes in the story, I mean, I just want to kind of add on to that. When, when, when she was paroled from prison, and in fact, even when her original sentence by a military court was vacated and she was retried in a civilian court, there were massive nationwide protests. There were death threats against her, against her lawyer, against the judge who approved her parole. Um, while she was in prison, she'd had a child, and I think he was six or seven when she was paroled, and she had to live in Peru for the next five years, and her child was being threatened on, mm. on playgrounds and public parks in Lima. Um, so to monkey around with that story, I mean, you know, th th there's just so much more at stake for her than there is for, you know, an American novelist parachuting into Peru for a few research trips that I, sure. I just also felt like I couldn't possibly live with myself if I did anything to um, raise her visibility in Peru during that time or to um, further convince Peruvians what many of them already thought, which was that she, that, that she was right. gring, gringa provocateur who wanted to sort of kill Peruvians. Right, right. The worst case, the worst case scenario for her. Yes. All right. Well, I, um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to ask you, we usually wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Um, but before I do rapid fire, I'm just going to, I know things are opening slowly. Do you know if any part of your tour is resuming? Do you have, or are you taking one day at a time right now? Well, I don't think anything is resuming as it was originally planned. I've done a, a, a handful of, um, virtual bookstore readings in place of in-store readings that that had been planned um and, and it, there will there will be a few more coming up um i think uh in a lot of cases uh, about half of the tour was um was readings that had been planned um at on university campuses and so those are kind of tentative, tentatively being rescheduled for the fall who knows whether things will be that normal in the fall even I, i'm pretty confident that that most of those will be rescheduled either in the fall or early in 2021. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do a bunch of the bookstore readings uh, in real life um, at some point as well. Um, maybe when the paperback uh, of the Gringa comes out or something like that. Okay. Where can our um, listeners find, I will put a link in, where could they find that sure. information, that up-to-date information? You want to put a plug in for that? Absolutely. Well, my, my website is andrewalshul.com. Um, and, uh, and I assume that, that Diane will put my name somewhere on, <laughs> on her podcast site so you know how to spell it. I will um, do that for sure. I, I update the events as often as I can. And as far as the book itself, you know, I'm, I'm a big, big supporter of independent bookstores. And so I really encourage anyone who's interested in reading it um, to go to bookshop.org or to the website of their local independent bookstore and buy it there. Yes, yes. We, we support indies strongly here as well. All right, Andrew. Get ready. ready. Rapid fire. Speed round. Speed round. Speed round. Speed round. What is your favorite word? Cantankerous. I love that. I love that word. I worked, um, as I told you before we started, I was a um, therapist, social worker for years, and I worked in a uh, military nursing home in the state of Florida. And let me tell you, I had a couple of old old enlisted men who um, personified cantankerous to the, to the nth degree. Right, right. It was a great experience. Okay, who is your favorite fictional hero or heroine? Oh, gosh. Um, I would have to say, um, well, 
Wow, that is a really, really tough question. Um, I mean, heroines, certainly somebody like Setha Suggs, who's the, the central character of Toni Morrison's beloved. Love it. Is, mm-hmm. You know, another, another incredibly complex and not entirely lovable um, heroine who nevertheless, you know, just breaks your heart on every right. page. Because again, she's fully human, right? Fully. Yeah. We fully are all, fun. yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? That's a great question. I'm reading a, a novel, um, a big, fat, complicated, fascinating novel called The Revisionaries by A.R. Moxon. Loved. Oh, it's a tome, but I loved. Oh. It's, right. It's I, a, it's one of the weirdest novels I've read in a long, long time. It keeps <laughs> reminding me of, like, Gravity's Rainbow. Yes, yes. So good. I am, are you struggling with um, concentration in COVID? Like, I... I I've gotten some big ones. I tried to read Duck's um, Newbery Pond, Newburyport. Right. This is not my time for Duck's Newburyport. Like yeah. I, I, I'm trying to read some lighter things, but I did love the Resonist. Yeah, I, I am struggling with with concentration. What I was doing, um, I mean, in the first maybe six weeks of this, I wasn't reading any fiction. I was only reading poetry, mm. um, and, and it just so happens that this is really this year has had just a bumper crop of wonderful new books of poetry, including um, The Wendy's by Alison Dennis White. Um, let's see what else. Uh, Lima Limon by Natalie Center Zafico. Um, gosh, there's uh, Nick Flynn had a, had a book of poetry in the fall called I Will Destroy You. And, and so for me, sitting down with poetry um, in the mornings, um, not only is just can be a really beautiful experience, but also kind of helps me to focus on language and, and imagery in a way that it is so hard to do right now. Yeah, yes, it is. So when reading, not when writing, because we know you're a completist when writing, but when reading, are you a completist or a DNFer? Like, if it's just not the time, do you do you struggle with putting things down, or are you okay with that? I'm trying to become more and more okay with it as I get older and realize how short life is. <laughs> I used to be the kind of person who I was just going to finish the damn book. Day, I, I, yes. And, yeah, can't I can't I can't keep that up anymore. There are just too many books that don't speak to me, and too many that I'm really dying to read. I know. I think that I think that is true. As I've gotten older too, I would I was a finish at all costs. Yeah. Um, like I was going to get a medal or a badge for that. You know, who cares? Right. But um, right. as I've gotten older, what I've found is nine times out of ten, it's not the book. It's me. It's my season. It's it's where I am in life. And if I put it down. And, and give it its honor and its place and come back to it in six months or in three years. I've loved many of the books that I've put down, but so I don't hesitate anymore. Put them on the shelf. They'll still be there. Yeah, that's interesting. You're more generous than me. I, I just get rid of <laughs> <laughs> Okay. This is the final, your final rapid fire. What is the All best right. money that you've ever spent as an author, for, for, not as an academic or as, a, you know, as an author, what's the best money you've ever spent? Wow. Um, can I say the best money that I'm ever going to spend? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So that I have a good answer for, which is that um, my, my wife and I live in, we, we have, we have a, a house in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, it's a perfectly comfortable house, but it's a very, very open floor plan. And my office is like this little nook in a loft above the living room that has no doors on it uh-huh. and we have a five-year-old <laughs> um so um it's not very conducive to um to sort of quiet and isolation that i need as a writer and so this summer 
we're going to bite the bullet and we're going to spend a little money to build a, a really small, like an eight foot by 10 foot little office shed in our backyard. Um, and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out like, if I can just, if I can sort of camouflage it with hedges or whatnot, so that my son never even <laughs> doesn't even find it out there. Yeah. Don't make it too inviting. He'll think it's like a no. fort or something fun. That's right. We're going to say, no, that's the neighbor's house. You can't go over there. <laughs> that's not our property, buddy. That's not our property. Something like that. Wish me luck. Yes, actually, that will be fabulous. Andrew, it was so delightful speaking to you, and I cannot recommend The Gringa highly enough. It is in bookstores now. Um, even if your indies aren't open, they are shipping. Um, find it. It is well worth your read. It will open up your mind. It will open up um, what you think. If you knew about the Peruvian experience in the 1990s and the 2000s, it will expand that. I did know that it happened, but I had no idea to the, to the depth and the magnitude that it happened. And, um, and I loved learning about it. So thank you so very much. I appreciate your time. Diane, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. And thanks to your to your listeners and followers for checking out The Gringa. Um, I, I really appreciate talking to you today. All right. And we'll put your link where um, people can find you in the late summer or the fall. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for joining us in talking about all things bookish. We will see you next time. 